0: Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of Black sports. I'm Lewis Moore.
1: I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary Black athletes.
0: And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day.
1: I'm Derek White, author of "The Challenge of Blackness" and "Blood, Sweat, and Tears." Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the history of Black college football.
0: Welcome back, Lou. Yeah, man. Thanks. It's been a hey, man. Back-to-back weeks, so so I can't complain. Semester is winding down. My kids are literally upstairs stomping around, uh, and I am not going to go get them. So so. Apologies to the listeners if you hear my kids today.
1: <laughs> uh, understand. Today, we've got a special guest uh, on the pod. It is a three-man weave pod today. Uh, today, we have Carl Sudler, author of Presumed Criminal, Black Youth in the Justice System in post New York, and an assistant professor of history at Emory University, a fellow sports historian traveler. Welcome, Carl.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Carl, before we get started, can you briefly tell us about about your award winning book? <laughs> um,
2: I, I guess award nominated. I haven't gotten any just yet. Fingers still crossed. But um, but the book is it looks at uh, black youth in the juvenile justice system from the 1930s to the 1960s in New York City, and really it's an extension of how the growth of the carceral state. Shifts the perceptions of young Black people um, drastically, right? From the progressive era, when we think of uh, a protection right system for young people in the justice system, and how it becomes much more punitive, right? And so we see kind of Black youth bear the brunt of that transition.
0: Yes, yes, so, and and look, look. Um, if you haven't got it, get it. I got it. Uh, I read it. Quick read. Uh, it's a very, very informative read and it gets you thinking we're going to have Carl back again when we talk about youth and sports. But it really gets you thinking about not only your favorite sports movies like uh, Coach Carter or Gridiron Gang, uh, but really how how we use sports with, with black youth, right, to to for lack of a better term to to reform them or to keep them out of trouble. And whenever you go over the history of the black athlete, there's always these stories about uh, from these youth about, you know, there's that coach in their life. There's that, that somebody in their life who turned them the, the right way, whether it's Jackie Robinson in Pasadena or Gail Sayers in, in Omaha, Nebraska. So, so go get that book. Um, and, and the reason why real quick, we had Carl on cause, cause as Derek said at the beginning, he's, he's a sports guy. Uh, so before, we introduce you to Carl. Carl's got to introduce you via his sports story. Um, it's a very interesting story. It, it, it tripped me out when I heard it. So so it's time to tell it, Carl.
2: Yeah. So everybody asks, right? Like, So I'm a fan of all teams New York except for basketball. And um, basketball, I'm a diehard Lakers fan. So various people ask me, how does that happen? And it really happened two ways. Uh, as a kid, I was denied a Autograph opportunity from Patrick Ewing, and uh, you know, it. 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 it I, I like to think that that's why the Knicks haven't won a championship ever since. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, but then the second part was, uh, you know, my my father was in the military, and we uh, we we moved out to Honolulu, and I was living on that Honolulu time zone where East Coast games were almost impossible to watch, and. So I became a fan, naturally, of a team on the West Coast. and But I like to point out that I'm old enough to remember the Lakers pre-Kobe Shaq dynasty, right? You know, So I'm talking early 90s Lakers squads, uh, Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, Cedric Zabalos, Lottie Divac, Like Those were my guys. Um, Eldon Campbell? Eldon Campbell. Don't uh, like, like keep that. naming them. Keep naming uh, them. No, nah, no. Nah, that was my squad. Oh, man. So you're going <laughs> to put me on the spot?
0: Um, go, go, go. Sedel 3. Sedell 3. <laughs> yeah, man. That guy could play. I don't know. He doesn't pass the ball at all. Can I, I say something, though? Like, as a, as a since you're like a New Yorker, move West Coast, like way West, West Coast. <laughs> hey, being on this quarantine and watching the NBA TV, anytime those New York 90s team come on, it's just an ugly, ugly basketball. <laughs> like, you are lucky you change your, your fan allegiance because it's like. You know, seventy points, seventy four points, and just just mucking it up. It's not it's not fun to watch at all. Like every every other game is fun. When New York plays, I'm like, I'm gonna turn this off because this, <laughs> this is bad basketball. Ugh, oh, no.
1: yeah. those uh, those uh '90s Knicks teams. Oh, those it's hard to believe that Pat Riley orchestrated that and the Showtime Lakers. It's like it's almost <laughs> it's almost a testament to the fact that Pat Riley can play both ways, like play left handed. That's just. It's actually pretty amazing when you think about it, because um, uh, you know those that that New York team and then the Heat played like that. Oh, the '90s were pretty terrible, actually. This
0: is what I say all the time. What those teams? Those te- come on. You can't say the '90s terrible, and then we watch, and this is what we're going to talk about—the last dance. But. But like those those New York and the Heat team, what what other teams was brutal? So that Indiana team is pretty brutal to watch too. Like I know we hyped it; they got a thirty for thirty. But the Davis boys, like um, you know, and Rick, Mark Jackson, and that's Rick, like the and slowest team ever, Rick, Rick, Smith. Smith, Rick Smith, Davis boys, Mark Jackson, and, and Reggie Miller, like oh
1: god. Uh, no, Utah was pretty hard to watch too because they just ran pick and roll all the like they ran basically the same right. play like seventy seven times. And and hey, I mean, even even as a guy,
2: as a fan of the West Coast teams and the Western Conference teams, part of why I attach myself to the Lakers is because I used to get so annoyed at the Seattle SuperSonics uh, that you know I I I was not a Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, deadlift shrimp kind of kind of guy. Wow! And so
0: I know, I know, I know. You admitted that. You know like, Sean. Oh. No, I No, yeah. <laughs> they were on. One of those Seattle games. Seattle and it's like a Seattle Houston playoff game. Might have been 86-87 and like Olajuwon dominated for like 40 and 20 rebounds. <laughs> and that Seattle so that Seattle team's like before Gary Payton. So but it was like Xavier McDaniel was out there, Dale Ellis, oh, uh, Tom Dale Chambers. Ellis. Like that was their Tom big Chambers, league. Yes. Tom- <laughs> But I, I like watching those old games because I'm not anti. Like, I love shooting three. I, I could ball. Carl's not ready for that yet. Like, I've seen Carl dribble; he's not ready for my my, my shooting. But like, when you watch the old school '80s, '90s games, the efficiency, the mid range, it's like I, I, it, it upsets me so much that they took it out of the game today. Like, because you know, you even you watch those old Jazz teams; you got Jeff Malone, you know, shooting over 50, percent right? Like, just knocking down 17, 18 footers. Um, and it's a beautiful part of the game that they, that they, they took out and, and it, it upsets me so much. CJ well, you know,
2: McCollum, CJ McCollum's keeping it in there though. CJ
1: McCollum right. is That's living true. in the mid range. Yeah, but he's That's not true. nearly as good as any of these guys, like those guys <laughs> from the eighties. Like he's good, but he's like a 40, 46, 47%, which is amazing in modern basketball. Right. But like, you know, the number of dudes, but our King made a whole career shooting mid range jump shots. Um, you know, I think that's a it's a it's an interesting game. Yeah, it is interesting to watch. Um, and I guess it's the Jordan. Uh and and for those who who, why, who? I don't know, this guy Michael, Michael uh, Dominique, okay. My, oh, ahead. my I'm bad. Okay. Uh yeah. last dance, the documentary. Thank you, ESPN. Uh brought us to us early. Uh we uh us three and others live tweeted it on Sunday night. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts. Uh you know, without longer than 240 characters.
0: (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Carl. Start. You're the guest. Go ahead. All
2: right. No, I was going to say, I think, um, I, I think one of your tweets, Lou, actually captured it perfect on Sunday when you tweeted that, uh, I thought this was about the temptations. nope, it's about david Ruffin uh, right <laughs> um because it you know obviously it's it, it's pitched as this last season uh but as we all kind of anticipated, it is a very michael jordan centered story um but again, you know as as. As as the young guy in the room, you know, I, I I remember these days, but I was young, and so I I appreciate some of these stories in different ways now, where I get to kind of look back at these Jordan days and understand where my fascination with sneakers and you know Jordan swag and the Michael Jordan cologne. You couldn't tell me anything about that Michael Jordan <laughs> cologne. That that Michael Jordan cologne was a gem, um, and um, and 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 so I have a newfound found a pre- appreciation of the Michael Jordan swagger because looking at this stuff and now, like, I mean, the suits, the beret, the, like, very the questionable appearance. decisions, <laughs> but, you know, but all of it just looked different when when Jordan rocked it.
1: I will say as the, I think I'm older than Lou. So I, the old person on this podcast <laughs> who, who who lived through all this, uh, one, all that baggy stuff was in style. So I have to just have to, we just have to come to grips with that. But two, I think it was interesting for me to, to hear like folks like Carl, um, you know, some of my student, former students on Twitter really talking about, you know, they knew Jordan, they knew of Jordan, they seen the YouTube clips, but they didn't have that you know, that it's hard to capture that ethos, that, that traveling circus that was the Bulls. You know, when they, you know, when Jordan came back, you know, uh, Lou knows this, like when he returned from baseball, that was like literally like people were just following him from city to city. Like Sports Center led every night with, what did Michael Jordan do tonight? Right. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, like when he drops 55 in the guard, like that was, that was like, it was like the Knicks won the title. <laughs> and, right, and, right. and so I think that you the documentary, I think, in the first two episodes, gave a, a really strong sense of the culture and the popularity surrounding Jordan that explains a lot. For a generation of people who grew up with Kobe and grew up with LeBron and now grew up with Steph Curry and Kate, like grew up with another generation of of star athletes, Um and that's that and that's real.
0: Right, right. That's uh, uh no, I'll just bring that, that point up. That's what always trips me out when I talk to my students. Um, you know, I always tell them that Dominique's the greatest player ever, and of course that he is, but um they uh I always bring up the point you've never even seen Jordan, right? Like that always trips me out that they 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 never really saw Jordan Jordan play live. Like they've seen the YouTube's and i don't even think his and some of his games are on nba tv like now they'd be on more like what, about a couple of weeks ago um that orlando game um it was like orlando the bulls i think it was before it was before penny mm-hmm. um that was on but you don't you know they don't get a sense of of who jordan was so so i think there's this whole new generation of 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 younger folks who who get to see highlights But I think what comes out of it, what I like is like you said, on the one hand, that traveling circus, just just how big they are. You can't there's no team. Like, I mean, the Warriors won the seventy three games, but they they weren't like the Bulls. Like when the Bulls showed up in town or when they were on TV or anything like that, right? Like, um, and then also just the the appreciation for that kind of the work ethic, right? And it's not to say anyone doesn't do it, but that's the one thing that, although I'm a Dominique fan like i i admire about jordan is like he's wildly talented right the world-class athlete but he also has this this attitude that you're not going to beat him right that can what you know coaches speak that competitive spirit right and i think that's what so many people lack um and he had it and just set him over the top over everybody so so that i like that comes out and i like um there's always this little bit of history. One of the things I wanted to kind of briefly mention, what I was noticing, I tweeted about it, um, that those guys, the Jordans, the Barkley, I think Barkley talks about this in an undefeated article like three or four years ago. Um, I'm assuming worthy. Um, those Southern Black players, right, are are like the first generation of Southern Black kids who grew up throughout integrated schools right mm-hmm. and it's a trip you never think about like how close that history is right? because if you do if you do the math and you work it out most of those southern schools they're not integrating till late 60s early 70s right so that what that charlotte case the busing case is what that doesn't come into effect till what 71 right. 72 right yeah so these guys are are starting their careers in integrated s- schools right and that uh that's I think that's what's tremendous, and I wish they would say more about it. But Jordan, I like, kind of talked about race, but it was like, come on, man, you're a black guy in North Carolina <laughs> of that first pre civil rights generation, and it's not like a conversation.
1: Yeah, no, um, it's it's a, I think you're right, and I think it reminds us. We we on this podcast, we talked a little bit about Leonard Hamilton as being this kind of groundbreaking guy. And in some ways we forget that like Leonard Hamilton's like the same age, he's older, but like, he's the first, the, the, the leading edge of that generation of, of those guys who broke all those barriers, uh, in terms of education. I mean, in terms of integration in the South, um, I guess the other highlight, and this is what I want to hear Carl's thoughts on this, because uh, Carl did an excellent job of finding, someone asked on Twitter, the ticket prices, uh, how they improved from 1984. I was like, Carl's a quintessential historian. That's what that's like. Right. Um, but the big other big issue in these first two episodes was Pippin's contract. Um, and that was a lot of hand-wringing. Uh, and it was interesting because they... they they intimated, even Scotty intimated that you know his contract decision and signing a long-term deal, at, you know, extension uh, that carried him into that season was motivated by you know he's like the eleventh of twelve kids from rural Arkansas uh, who had two a handicapped uh, you know a parent, his father was in a wheelchair, his brother was paralyzed. Like for him. Like that, like, it was so clear there was a poverty decision and it was interesting that that didn't get, you know, I think the documentary didn't, I don't know, tease that out a little bit more. Carl, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right on, right? I think, uh, I, I think what this documentary shows is just how important that year was to the, I mean, the growth of sports capitalism, right? Um, you know, I mean the the amount of the money changes that are happening in sports, right? Whether we're talking about it through the contract or whether we're talking about it through those season tickets, is that um, you know, the money booms over a very short period of time, like astronomically. Um I I mean, I think what happened was uh when when we were tweeting about the season ticket costs, I think, you know, a season ticket was like thirteen fifty a seat. Um mm-hmm. Which seems, you know, even in those, you know, it's, it, it, I say even in those days as if it's that long ago, but it's not like thirteen fifty a seat was that expensive then neither, right? Um, right, in relation to what we would think about for a season ticket today, even for a bad team. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've had the benefit of, of following around a lot of East Coast teams in my life. Uh, in terms of the job, has put me in different places, and you know, I was able to get Pacers tickets for cheap, get Heat tickets for cheap. I, I I show up to Hawks games with regularity these days, and you know, I love Trey Young and I love the young Hawks, but um, you know, even the even bad seats aren't cheap, right? And um, but but we see this kind of growth in money and sports in such a short amount of time, and as Bulls team is, is is you know a big reason. Board, right, There must-see TV, um, but they they build the experience of going to those games as something different. And I mean, to Pippen's contract, and you know, not flushing out the, the the issue around you know him just signing the contract because it was guaranteed money and he was coming out of those conditions. I think it's incredibly missed opportunity, especially when you look at. Not only was he being so underpaid, but he was even underpaid on his team, right? Like was it Luke Long? <laughs> like Luke Longley yeah. was making more money than him and, you know, Luke Longley was well ahead of his time in terms of Australians in the NBA. Um and so uh, <laughs> you know, shout out Ben Simmons. But uh, but but yeah, so 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 I think that definitely could have been teased out a little better. Um and and I was, you know, happy to see Pippen eventually get his day, but you know, the, the underpaid
1: contract was insane. You know, the historian to me, uh, and I, I wanted to hear from the agent. Oh, yeah. Jimmy like, Sexton?
0: Or yeah. What's his name? Sexton, yeah.
1: I just, I just yeah. wanted to know what the, like, you know, he was like, yo, we negotiated. Like, I wanted to hear him think through, you know, 30 years later. Yeah. Like, look, like, this is why we did this. We probably should have yeah. been seven years instead of eight. But they made five years.
0: You know. Let uh, me let me let me let me let me let me jump in here because because that's a no limit sports agency contract this <laughs> side there. But first, like on ticket prices for, for you listeners who are interested, there's a book, Michael Jordan and Global Capitalism, that, that does a, a pretty good job just showing you the value of Jordan, not only to the Bulls, but to the NBA, right? And to Nike. So if you're if you're a numbers guy, you're a capitalism guy, stuff like that, uh, and a sports person, it's a very good quick read um i would have break broke down those numbers for you but once the covet hit and we got sent home i can't find anything uh <laughs> but the thing with St- scotty's contract and the thing with the nba right that that's so crazy it's like when you look i was looking up this stuff when these guys like let's say 88 if we go to 88 88 i believe is when jordan um re so so jordan has a rookie contract 84 Grossly underpaid because he's Michael Jordan, but it doesn't matter because he has endorsements. And when he signs that deal, it makes him one of the top paid players, along with Magic, who just uh, redid his contract. I think he had a twenty-five year, tw- uh, twenty-five million dollar contract, so one million a year, which was big back in the early eighties. But by eighty-eight, that's not enough. So he he does it to three million a year. Patrick Ewing's at three million a year. Jordan's at three million a year. And when it comes to that pitching contract in ninety-one. Pippin's in like the mid 700s, right? So he's on a he's on a rookie contract. But as we discussed in like in the pre-show, that the the salary cap was 12.5 million. So think about that, right? It's 12.5 million, and and I think it grows, as Derek says, just within five years to like 40 something million. But he signs this guaranteed, and this is what he was saying back then, and it kind of comes out in the show is he's worried about getting hurt and and granted like his rookie year he's hurt and what the year before he has those nasty migraines but what he says is like he sees Bo Jackson and what mm-hmm. happens with Bo Jackson is his football career so and he and as the i think the doc teases out a little bit his dad you know paralyzed his brother's paralyzed so you know I think he has this thing about his health but I think the agent should have also been able to read the market a little bit better right and wh- what I what I mean by that is that when Pippen signs in, in 91, he still has two more years left on his contract. But what he does, he signs an a eight-year contract. So he signs an eight-year contract, right? And that's why it pushes it to 98. But other comparable guys, Reggie Lewis, right, RIP, mm-hmm. and Reggie Miller, signed five-year deals before him, right? And so when Pippen's about to sign this contract, he's like, I want you know money like Reggie Miller, Reggie Lewis, but he doesn't follow that. Let me do a five-year deal and get in, get out. And so when you think about it, like Reggie signed like five years for like 15 million, Reggie uh, Miller, right? And Reggie Lewis signed like for like 16 million, something like that, but 40% for some is deferred the last 15, like 15 years, uh, which is crazy. I don't know why, you know, just numbers days. But Pippen, instead of signing that five years, he signs eight and then tax on. So it's like he has... Two years remaining. He has a year at the 91. He signs it in June. So they count that year and then two years that he still has remaining that were non-guaranteed. And then it kicks in after that, right? After that. So he signs a, a five years extension with two years left. Right. It's like, why would you do that? Like, why not? They should have tore that, up his,
1: and, they should have. Well, basically he did it because right. that it guaranteed those last two years of his rookie deer deal. That's what he right. wanted.
0: But he could have tore that up he and still done got five. It. Yeah. And the difference would have been, let's say you signed a Reggie Lewis contract. The difference is you gave up what? For three years, two million dollars. Right? Yeah. So it doesn't make sense because Reggie put five for sixteen and Pippen's getting eight for eighteen. Yeah. So like money wise, this is what I'm saying. Like I get like the guarantees. I get he's coming from poverty. But by the oh. time if he did a five year deal, he's already ten years in the league. Right. And I think his first, you know what I mean? He's ten years in plus twenty-five million in the league versus 13 years and 28 million in the league so it doesn't even make to me it didn't even make mathematical sense to to do eight years but that's what guys are doing like it's crazy like lj i think lj when he signs like 94 for you young people out there that's larry johnson Uh, (laughs) if you if you have the 2k game you could play with him on the hornets with uh Alonzo Morning, uh, Steph Curry's dad, and uh, I believe Muggsy Bogues, but you wanna you wanna get Muggsy out the game and put in Kendall Gill. He's too he's too short. Um, but he signed like a 10 year, 84 million dollar deal. Yeah. And like we've talked numbers before, and I think this is what's like to jump ahead. This is the greatness of LeBron signing those shorter deals. Yeah. Right? Like guys are so used to signing seven, eight. And LeBron's like, now nah, we're going to do these, like, player options, one-year player option, three-year player option. And it just changed the game, right? Um, but, no, that's my thing on on, on Pippin's contract. I know I went a little bit crazy on it, but I spent a considerable amount of time spent, like, paying attention to my kids or, or grading work, uh, <laughs> looking, at all, looking at how all these contracts work. Because I was like, I can't believe that a 98, you know, George is making thirty a year, and Pippen is making, is making two. $3, three, <laughs> two, but, uh, seven, or something like that. But you That's know what crazy. this
1: is? You know, like part of the, uh, I think to me, the hidden factor in this six, this six championships at the Bulls that I think this contract points to, right, is that this contract, like this run and these dynasties, that you know, even if we go the, if we go back even further, the Lakers and the Celtics from the eighties as well, right they're only able to do that in part because the salaries for their best players are so artificially low. Right. You know, you know what I mean like if magic signed in for like magic and bird are the most important players in the NBA in the 80s and if magic's only making 25 million a million dollars a year on the for his salary and he's got the best team in the whole decade then that doesn't make any kind of sense. Right, and I and I think that what you get is that the only way that the only way that Jordan can win six titles is in part because Scottie Pippen is trapped in that contract for, for eight right. years,
0: and that but, contract allows them to get Rodman, allows them to get Coach, right? Like even when they signed in ninety one, part of the reason was to leave money for Kukoc whenever he showed up, right? Right. So it's like, yeah, no, that's that's what that's exactly it. Like I mean, if you look at those Heat teams the heat teams, like we never thought about it when it sounds like, Oh yeah, they're going to win five, six, seven, eight in a row. But they, they loaded up three guys. Yeah. right it's, And it's like, you can't, you know, it's a 12 man roster and you're like filling the holes of like an old Mike Bibby. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mike Bibby could barely move or, you know, um, what did Jason, Williams, Jason Williams was on one of those teams or no, he was on no, the first he was, run.
1: Yeah. He's on the first he run.
0: The, yeah. His first run. Right. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, Joel Anthony or something like that, like just
1: No, you, uh, you had a, you basically, it. you could only, you could only do, I mean, I, I lived in Miami when the Heat made this second, that, that you know, that, that triumvirate. And it was always interesting to see, you know, they had a mid-level exception that they try to use every year. They basically had the draft guys um, right. and, you know, and hope that they may, and they had a draft second rounder. So they didn't have guaranteed contracts for three years. Right. So like some of it was like, you know they didn't have any draft picks so they had to take a guy in the second round or take a second round guy and give him a partially guaranteed deal in order to fill out the rosters you know a guy cuz i heard it was it was always interesting to watch and and i think you know in hindsight when we you know we get a little perspective pat Riley's ability in miami i think has been underserved um because he had three you know hall of fame players but the the ability to put that roster together the rest of the roster, because there's still like, like you said, there's 10, 10 other spots. Uh, you gotta ask
0: Mike Miller to take
1: a, a discount, right? Yeah. yeah, you gotta. I mean, Shane. I mean, you got you, Allen, you, you squeeze right. You squeeze in years out of Ray Allen. You're squeezing years out of Shane Battier. You're squeezing years out of Joel Anthony's giving you quality minutes. I mean, Udonis Haslam is still on the team, you know. But like, right. but like I mean, I guess they're giving a the percentage of the team or something at this point. Like, <laughs> like, uh, and He's i think, still there, huh? Yeah, this is supposed to be his last year. So I think it's interesting to think about how, like, when we look at these contracts and we think about what are the structures, I think sometimes in this debate about who the greatest players are and what makes them great, uh, you know, it's not to say that, you know, Jordan is not any less competitive than Charles Barkley, right? Like some of it is that, you know, you have, um, you know, some good GMs and some bad, you know, and some bad deals for the players. Uh, and that's why I think the other argument is that in that first episode is Jerry Krause is this, he's the evil guy breaking up this team. At the same time, he's really the genius that puts all this together.
0: <laughs> right. To, to I mean, he had two good draft picks, but like, I mean, that's it. That's all you need. You hit, you hit on Jordan, you hit on Pippen, right? You missed on like Stacey King, yeah, uh, Dickie Simpkins, <laughs> all these other yeah. players. Now you missed like on some some early picks, right? Uh, Corey Benjamin, I, I think they picked him. Um, Keith Booth, but, but Keith Booth, it's my guy. Is he a Maryland guy? It's my
1: guy. It's my guy. Keith <laughs> Booth, go <laughs> easy. That your friend,
0: friend? Yes, yeah. that's my guy. That's my guy. Okay, that's okay. my classmate. But what I want to, what I like, Derek, like you said, like those those numbers jumped to, like ninety four, ninety five, and part of it's the dream team, but but part of it to me is like. And that explosion of the NBA, but the hip hop too. Right. And it's those guys that kind of, that I think that grows the league even more. Right. Where these guys become like celebrity, celebrities. And, and Carl talked about his, his favorite uh, Laker team. Uh, and speaking of that Laker team, when he was on the sons and, and hip hop, Cedric Zabalos, uh had a, he was on that NBA raps album. You guys remember that?
1: <laughs> I'd remember uh, it's, it. It's
0: called, it's called basketball's best kept secret, and uh, they put out a rap album. Uh, and Sibalos had a song, I believe, with like Warren G. Um, Brian Shaw had one of the better songs. Gary Payton was on there. Uh, Who else was out there? I don't even know. That's a... yeah, but it's like that hip hop. Like I think it just um, like helped the NBA just grow. And but it's that, but it's the attitude too. That where guys like I'm gonna get mine. You know what I mean? Like L.J. is gonna sign that 84 million dollar contract. Glenn Robinson's is gonna come into the league demanding 100 million, right? Like it's just gonna expand those salaries. Now eventually they're gonna have to cut away those rookie salaries, right? So you know someone like Glenn Robinson is gonna come. I think he winds up selling for like 60 Grand Hills in the 40s. But then the next year, like Joe, your your boy Joe Smith is getting like nine million or something like that. That's because they had the rookie um, deal. Right. Well, they capped it because right? yeah. they change it. But that's the part. That's what I'm talking about. Like that attitude um, that I'm going to get mine changes, right? And now those teams don't win, uh, but you can't eat your championship, right? Like like I'd rather be LJ making a couple, you know, 100 plus million than, than having titles and, and being broke. So,
2: But that's the thing about sports, right? Like we always pitch it that way as, you know, I mean, we, we see that with even the teams today. You know, are you willing to take less to get a better team around you? Um, And then you have the players who are like, no, I'm going to bet on myself. Right. Um, And this kind of bet on myself is often looked at as selfish and a detriment to the team. And uh, but now I'm with you. Right. Like, you know, these players need to get their money because, like you said, they uh, there's no eating a championship trophy. There's no eating
1: that Larry O'Brien. I mean, it, t- this is us getting talking about an NBA se- season that does not exist anymore. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, me and Lou used to have this argument all the time. Like, you know, I like I like dynasties. I think the one thing that the, the, the Bulls show in the 90s and as a, as a person who grew up on the NBAs in the 80s, uh, Lakers and Celtics, I think dynasties are really good for sports because what it really does is it ups the ante for fans it up the ante for uh, the leagues themselves like look if you want to compete you got to go you got to go take the title from you know from this from this champion and i think that it's important and i think the thing that's frustrating even in this last dance uh documentary is that at some point the ownership doesn't want to win right like this is the the, the the this is the point right like like we like the 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 bulls are like yo we've won enough so like oh they're gonna uh, break them the, up like yeah. we like phil jackson we're like this is your last year uh scotty we're not gonna pay you da, 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 da. like we don't we don't want to win right. you know what i mean like there's a sense that there's a you know like we would rather break it up too early than too late and i feel like that's that's to me a, a terrible frustration um in terms of, 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 you know, and this is why players should always go get their money.
0: Go get it. Right. But I think like the coolest thing was, I, I think not the coolest thing. One of the things looking at it is like, when you're looking at that 98 and, and you know, Pippen saying I want to be traded. Now to be clear, Pippen has said that a lot. He said that in 91, says that in 94, says that in 95. Um, and it says that at 98. And just to think about what they could have got um, for that, like the, the Sean camp or the, or the, or the Tracy McGrady's, but, but part of what, what Cross was thinking was just like, do I hold on to this guy or do I get a piece now? Right. To someone I know I'm not going to get back. And that was just that, you know, the owner's just like, that's, that's what separated him from others. Like I'm going to get my six. Right. Whereas maybe Belichick, you know, if we're going to another sport or Robert Kraft, maybe, you know, maybe they put off that six title in that year for 98 to get something in, in, in 2000, you know what I mean? Um, but because holding on to that team, it killed the franchise, right? I mean, they got lucky with Derrick Rose, but other than that, I mean, it uh, killed the killed killed them. Um, and if you go back earlier, we brought up those Boston teams. Like I had tweeted out like a list of the top paid players in 92. And if you look at that, the top tens, it's Reggie Lewis, Robert Parrish, I think mean, Kevin McHale's in there. And then they also signed Larry Bird to like a high contract. And he had nothing left in the tank. So Boston was in that weird position, like, yeah, we're going to hold on to all our old guys and pay them too. And for the longest time, right, until they fleece Minnesota and, you know, and get yeah. Kevin Garnett for I don't I don't even know what they got Kevin Garnett for. Um, right? They they were done. They held on to an aging Larry Bird. Well, now they I- got hurt with a couple of deaths. Yes. But still.
1: Yeah. Let's just be real like that. Let me just say this as a, as the, as the resident Maryland uh, alum and expert uh, that Boston's narrative uh, is, is a very different narrative. If you bring in a young Lynn bias and, right. and, you know, and, and, you and know, Reggie it, Lewis lives.
0: Right. right.
1: Right. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't change you know, your point about the money and holding, paying these old guys well past their effectiveness. Um, but you know, I think that the windows are small, man. Like you, what we know now, in the 98, 99 was the strike sorting season. Last time the Knicks made it to the finals, like do we not think that uh, that if they could convince Jordan to come back and Phil Jackson to run it back, that they couldn't have been they couldn't have won another one?
0: Ooh, I don't know. See, I don't know because Pip 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 was on his last. Like Pip was done. But I'm saying if they had like negotiated a three-year deal
1: a year before, right, or something, you know what I mean, like. Right. You know what I mean? I don't know. You know,
0: all this is Who high. won that? Was that the Spurs? That was the Spurs. With, with Duncan and a uh, young Duncan and Robinson teaming up. That's yeah. tough. Yeah, but they, I mean, tough one. So, you know, I think ah, it's that's a tough
1: one. So, I think it's just really an interesting question to think about like how you, you know, how ownership tries to hold on to, you know, when do they pull the plug? Uh, And it's just interesting to watch that the greatest team and the greatest player of all time by many many people's standard, uh, to watch an ownership and and let his general manager be like, yeah, we're breaking this up. I'm like, I I seemed like you would just keep it together just to sell jerseys.
0: You got Jordan. Right. Never (laughs) let that go that's the crazy thing (laughs) that's the crazy thing to me (laughs) never you never let that go right that's i mean he's a billionaire now you know what i mean like somebody pointed out and and i know we'll wrap up pretty quickly but on twitter like how big jordan was like they interviewed patrick ewing his one of his biggest rivals and patrick ewing is the coach of georgetown and georgetown's a jordan brand it's a jordan brand right that's how crazy he eclipsed uh his peers right like his his main rival from i would it's fair to say from college and throughout even though patrick wins nothing is is a jordan Man. brand guy now right that's what's crazy about it
1: patrick won nothing because he stiffed carl this is the Absolutely. whole, whole Absolutely. that's the that's whole it. this is this is this, the of, this yeah. is the theme of this
0: is the yeah, spud webb once turned turned me down for 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 autograph so so i know how you feel so
1: <laughs> um, let, 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 as we move to the end, we're at like 38 minutes here, and, and we don't want to go too much longer. Uh, Carl, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, can you talk about your colleague who uh, who was a sports historian who who recently passed? I'd I like to say a few positive words uh, for our audience and our listeners who may who may not be familiar with his work, and, and and just talk a little bit about his legacy at Emory and in the in the profession.
2: Yeah, so. This was tough. On um, Sunday, Dr. Pello McDaniels, who was a curator of African-American collections here at Emory's Stuart Rose Manuscripts Archives and Rare Book Library, passed away suddenly in his home. And he, I mean, a sport historian, archivist, you know, wrote a book about jockeys, uh, was also a former NFL player, right? And he had a career in the NFL as a defensive lineman, mainly for the Chiefs, but he played one season here in Atlanta with the Falcons um, before transitioning into this second career in which he also flourished. And um, it, it, it was a tough day here in Atlanta. It was a tough day on campus, remotely on campus, right, because COVID. But, um, you know, and, at, at, and it hit me in a different way because, you know, I have known Pelham for the past five years. Five years now, yeah. Since I was a postdoc in 2015, and he helped me immensely as a as a when I was here as a postdoc, wrapping up the first book, um, and then even when I moved on to f- be a history professor at Florida Atlantic, I taught my first sports history class there, and I remember running some ideas past Pelham about like what what kind of primary sources can I incorporate into my class, and you know, and he. Then when I came back to Emory, he was just one of those guys who welcomed me back with open arms. He was one of the first to reach out um, to congratulate me on the move. And, you know, we, we'd, we'd, every opportunity we had, we, we would sit down and we would rap about different projects that we want to get different collaborations that we want to ha- make happen on campus. And um, I taught a sports history class here at Emory in um a research seminar last semester and I asked Pelham, you know, hey, can I bring my students by the archive? And, you know, he's he scheduled a three hour block, right? It was research seminar scheduled for three hours and, you know, he just was wheeling and dealing for three hours and you just could see him and his element, right? He was a curator, but he was a you know, he was a teacher, right? He had that gift. And, you know, I have so many memories um over the past five years with Pelham and um you know he uh one, one, one that I'd like to share before we break out is that uh he, he again he played for the Chiefs and the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl this year uh was huge for him. And and I saw him the week after the Super Bowl, and I mean he was just he was glowing, right? You know, we would have conversations about the Chiefs teams that he was on, and he would talk about his teammate, Derek Thomas, and he has some crazy Derek Thomas stories, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, he was so excited that the Chiefs had, you know, pulled it off. And, you know, he loved Pat Mahomes. He, you know, the, spoke so highly of the Hunt family. And, um, you know, we're going to miss him for sure And but at Emory, at Atlanta. You know, because he selflessly, selflessly, I should say, shared insights and his wisdom with me all the time about navigating academia and about how staying grounded in the communities was important to him. And, um, yeah, and so I just, you know, I can say so much more about the conversations and the shared times that we have. But, you know, for now, I just want to extend my condolences to his wife, Navab, his son, Ellington, who's a freshman here at Emory. Um, and his daughter Sophie uh, definitely keep them in your hearts and prayers. And thanks for giving me uh, the platform to talk about it a little bit here.
1: No, no, thank you for sharing those 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 kind and, and important words. I, I'll just say I, I've had a, a number of opportunities of uh, of meeting Pelham, and he's been a, a gracious. Uh, a gracious colleague in the field uh, has been a tremendous assistance anytime that I've been at Emory. Um, for those who know, I worked my first book uh, on the Institute of Black World in Atlanta, and a lot of that stuff was at uh, at Emory. And he was just coming on into his role there as I was finishing my book. And so we saw each other as colleagues in the field. And so it's a terrible loss, as you noted, I know, for the Emory community. But it's a terrible loss for us in the field Um he was a person that you could send graduate students to, and be like, "Hey, there's some stuff at Emory. Reach out to this brother. He's going to make sure that he that that you find the things that you need." And uh, uh, and it's a terrible loss. And so, thank you for those kind words uh, on the Black Athlete Podcast. For sure,
0: right?
1: Thank you. And so. Right now, uh, I want to give Lee and Lou would like to thank Carl one more time for giving us uh, uh to, for for one organizing our live tweeting of the last dance, which we will do again right. on Sunday, we'll and then back.
0: some piston stuff.
1: Yes, and uh, and then thanks for coming on, and hopping on the pod at the last minute, doing a three man weave with us. Yeah, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing
2: which, which which pair of Jordans I can whip out. Um, you know, I. I I rocked the Columbia 11s on the first episode, so we'll see what I can pull out the closet for this next one. Okay. Look at you. Okay. Okay.
0: I'll be in my sweats. I'll be in my sweats. (laughs) Drinking a nice uh, beer that's barrel age. Pretty high ABV, so I could tweet away all night. So there we go. Uh, (laughs) All right, man. On that note, peace. Peace.